You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic. Welcome to your uh, In Between Christmas and New Year episode, episode 86. So this is like a little late gift for everyone. Yeah, you know, it's last year did we did we broadcast or, or publish him? I think we did. Yeah. Oh, we yeah. did. Okay. All right. I know I know at some point we weren't still doing every week at that point. Even though we're every week that now. That was such a long time. I know. I don't even remember. <laughs> we were actually just going over that we're, we're coming up on our one-year anniversary mm-hmm. at the end of February, and then we're going to hit episode 100 sometime, I think, in early April. Are we going to do anything special for either of those occasions? Uh, for one of them, at least. Maybe right. both. We'll have to see. I'm it's hoping, a long way away. I'm That's hoping. A, future I'm, us has to figure that out. <laughs> I'm hoping for the 100th episode, maybe we can get some past guests to call in on the question and comment line. Uh, but the, I don't know. I, I know last year we talked about throwing out an auction idea mm-hmm. for, um, uh, for charity. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you still want to do it. Maybe we should have that yeah. conversation off the yeah. air yeah. where we can donate, like you can have us come out to your property and, and give you some hints or you could do a nature walk with us or, or some of our guests, you could have a half an hour with mm-hmm. one of our guests to help design. So all for, for nonprofit, uh, I don't know. We if we're going to yeah. do that, we should probably think about it. Yeah, we got to we got to come <laughs> up with a full idea first. But speaking of guests, we have a really great guest today. Another author. Um, the book is called Lawns the Meadows, and the author is Owen Wormser. So, Owen, why don't you introduce yourself and uh, and tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, thanks for having me. I um, am a landscape designer. I have a undergraduate degree in landscape architecture, and I grew up in a kind of unusual situation and that I grew up off the grid in central Maine. And so the reason that that's uh, sort of relevant to this story is because that's been central to my experience. And I spent a lot of time in nature growing up. There weren't many people around half mile from my nearest neighbor, didn't have a TV. And by the nature of the situation, um, like having to go to use an outhouse, which means going outside every day, no matter what, including in the winter. Um, It really connected me to the natural world in a way that I'm fortunate that it suited me. I'm sure that's not something that would have uh, worked well for every kid, Um, but it suited me. And I was always interested in plants and nature. And it really is a thread that I've carried with me into my professional career and um, it's not an accident in that I generally knew that, that, that I wanted to work with plants and, and be outside, but it really wasn't until I graduated college and started working for myself that I really, I think, started to engage with plants in a really sort of conscious fashion. I think um, I really started to learn about how... Uh, how plants work together and the complexity of ecology and how soil and water and everything works together to create gardens and landscapes. So that's really a a 
just a passion of mine and something that I'm very interested in. And I've been operating a design build company um, in some form or fashion for a little over two decades. And I currently operate a business in Western Massachusetts where I live. And the focus is on um, creating ecological landscapes and creating uh, beauty and really functional gardens for a lot of residential clients, but also um, some institutional work and nonprofit stuff. And I also run a nonprofit called uh, Local Harmony that I that I co-founded um, that is based in Western Mass and has a focus on basically uh, encouraging people to steward the landscape and um, take care of it, build gardens, and um, generally kind of uh, restore the landscape around us. All right. If, if I could i would like to to talk about your formative years a little bit because it's you know even though i had read it and i knew what you were going to say as you were saying it it just sparked like a million more questions <laughs> as you were talking about it so we're I, I know you mentioned in the book like what kind of sparked your parents to make that move off the grid were they did they and and i would imagine growing up the way that you did you have a connection to nature that not everyone gets to have just out of necessity you get it and i I have this conversation with my fiance. She grew up grew up in a farm in uh, communist Poland. So it's we were just at Batstow Village in New Jersey, and we were looking at the outhouses. And I I wasn't thinking. I was like, oh, can you imagine doing that in the cold? And she goes, yeah, I I did. We we had an outhouse, and and you learn to be really quick when it's <laughs> when it's cold. So um, did your parents have that connection prior to doing that, or was this a whole new experience for them making that change? Yeah, it was a new experience for them. And they, uh, my dad's from Baltimore and my mom's from a town in Massachusetts, grew up in town. And um, they were sort of uh, accidentally, uh, they kind of accidentally wandered into that territory. They intended to get electricity and where they built their house was a little bit too far from the uh from the power lines so that they would have had to pay to have the utility company bring it in. It was very expensive and they realized that they were comfortable not having electricity and they liked it. And so then they just stuck it out for a little over 25 years. Wow. And that was the environment that I grew up in, but it wasn't really a dogmatic choice per se. It was something that actually was sort of accidental and um, an outgrowth of the times, which was the early 70s. And they were definitely looking to connect to the landscape and be closer to the earth. And the not having electricity part of it, though, like I said, um, wasn't really planned on. 25 mm-hmm. years is actually yeah. really impressive. Was it a, a conscious decision to, to move away from that eventually? Like I, I would imagine as you get older, it's harder to – to do that work, to maintain that. Exactly. It's a lot of work. It's a really, you know, enormous commitment. Um, and they, uh, felt like they had, you know, absorbed as much as they, you know, they were in a good place with that. And it has, you know, been very formative in their lives. Um, did, did it ever occur to you to continue living that way? Yeah, I think, I mean, when you're when you grow up one way or another as a child, because we all have these different experiences as kids that you know we're not really in control of at all, and 
you take them, you get used to them for better and for worse. And uh, in this case, this is just something that I was acclimated to. So I always knew that it's sort of a baseline um, way that I could exist. And there's a certain contentment in the simplicity of it. And certainly a lot of contentment um, from connecting to nature. So in the face of all of the complexities of the sort of human world, um, just going to live in a cabin like Thoreau is something that's <laughs> actually pretty appealing to me. And I sort of knew that if the wheels ever fell off personally or collectively, that I could always go do that. Um, but I, I, I've chosen not to because I feel like um, it's easy for me to do that in a way. I've already done it. And my interest is actually trying to impart some of those values and that sense of connectedness that I've been able to experience and um, see how I can bring that out into the world more. You know, it's funny. I see that internal struggle struggle sometimes with my fiance after growing up the way she did and wanting to not necessarily just accept all modern technology. You know, it's um, she would rather still do her coffee putting grounds in a cup and pouring hot water over it to make sure she can put the leftover grounds in the gardens outside. You know, it's mm -hmm. she could easily have a much easier convenience and she doesn't feel she's she's had a struggle with it. She just doesn't want to like there's nothing wrong with this way and I can do it. So why wouldn't I do it? Um you know, we have that <laughs> you know, we have that discussion with a lot of technology just like I just don't feel that's necessary. I've lived my whole life this way. And and you know, growing up, I didn't have the same connection. I have a better connection now than I did. But do you do you have any of those like internal things? Like, do I really need this? Like, I I did all these years without using this. Do I have to, you know, embrace this all the time? And I think there's a real balance um, between technology and you know more more basic approaches to how we can live. And I think the one thing that people forget when they embrace technology is it's the experience of living and being connected to other living things in the beauty of this planet that really sustains us. Yeah. And, you know, it is very entertaining, exciting, interesting, or just, uh, engaging to to work with technology but at the same time it's generally not as fulfilling and so i think it's really important that people look at that and i think that in the last two years since um covid people are actually looking at that more and and spending more time outside and thinking about what it is that actually makes them happy and if you don't have a connection to the earth in any way it's very difficult to be human really i mean because yeah. that's where we come from and it, it, part of the reason why i'm asking is because i i feel as though a lot of our listeners are working their way backwards to that you know and and maybe COVID was was their awakening to that but it's we're all brought up in a certain disconnected type world like you're connected but through technology with people it's not you know i see a difference in how i was a kid to how my children are you know, and it's changing, and I think a lot of people are coming to that realization and working their way backwards, and they're not really quite sure how to go about it, or they're maybe a little 
hesitant to completely let go. <laughs> and that's what we yeah. have someone here with a firsthand experience growing up like that. And, you know, I just think it would be interesting for people to hear that. Yeah, well, I think we come from a culture that is, I've, I've been using this expression lately, ecologically illiterate. People aren't, it's really no fault of of individuals in the sense that nobody teaches us anything about um, how to connect to the natural world and that that connection is a birthright, that as a human being, you have that if you're born on this planet. Um, it's innate. And... I think people do, you know, people have to essentially strike out and figure out how to connect to that on their own. Um, there's more and more resources, things like this podcast, and there's more childhood nature education and things that were, were less common in the past. But really, we live in a, in a culture that has been at war with nature. And we essentially eliminated the people that were here that had a thousands year old history of interacting in an intimate way with nature. And it's not to romanticize that a hundred percent or anything, but that ecological knowledge was very deep and yeah. very present. And so we come from a place where we have to reconnect to that and figure out how to do so on our own. Yeah. I even think back to, uh, I don't remember what episode it was, but we had uh, Samuel Thayer on who's a, a great, Farger. forger and, and knows a lot of the history of these forged foods and he's one of the people that's kind of it's almost like a lost language and he's the one who's keeping it alive and he's digging into historical textbooks to find okay one person told me that they could eat this and it was like a hundred year old woman from georgia was saying you could eat this plant but everything else says that it's poisonous and then mm -hmm. he's the one who's actually doing the research and figuring it out but there's a lot of people who are they're relearning how to do a lot of this stuff it's it's all like like i said like a lost language that yeah. we're kind of looking back to and some of the stuff is just lost forever and they're they're hard conversations to have because because the colonists came in and tried to disconnect like you had people with knowledge and they wanted to disconnect them from that knowledge and now all of a sudden there's an there's an interest in that knowledge again that that is is somewhat lost and mm -hmm. it, it, they're just it, it's – I kind of lost where I was going with that. Well, it's, I, I, I want to just to jump in yeah. and say that you know, in the push for the future and technology and, and material gain, which has given us enormous advantage, I think people mm -hmm. tend to see things in a polarized way. You know, I'm not uh, – I have some Luddite tendencies, but I'm not a Luddite because I realize you know, it's amazing what we've put together as a civilization in terms of being able to – you know someone breaks their bone and they can go to a hospital and have it put back together. That's a really big deal. People yeah. used to die from that stuff. And the list is long in that regard. So I really, I embrace that, but at the same time, we've become impoverished essentially on a spiritual level because we don't have this connection to these things that sustain us. Like the photograph of the rainbow behind you, or yeah. it's those yeah. moments that actually really sustain us and give us the inspiration and well-being that, that we need. And so if we don't have that in our lives, um, you know, we're, we're missing it. And as we focus on, you know, virtual reality and things like that, the, the, the um, risk of getting completely lost is, is even greater than ever. Yeah. yeah. I, I remembered where I was going to go and I was going to say a couple episodes ago, we, we talked about an article about um, ancient uh, Native American uses for medicine. And I think a lot of it was dismissed early on 
that uh, you're just you know making up stuff from what you have. But now they're doing all this medical research on it saying, oh, you know what? Yeah, they were absolutely right. These have these properties and they do the mm-hmm. things they said they do. It's just so much of it was dismissed. And, but they just had such a wonderful connection of just using what needed to be used mm-hmm. in a way that needed it. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's it's. You know, it's nice to see that that there's a large group of people heading back in that direction. Um, and and we want to talk about the book, but before we do, I was curious where you grew up. Have you gone back there, and has it changed since um, you grew up there? Um, I was I was back there this summer, and I go back, you know, not infrequently just to check it out. And I have a you know a strong connection to that landscape and and the place itself. Um, you know, what I, I think just locally in the area where I grew up, it's been logged more heavily. Maine is, you know, a state with a, uh, what they call a forestry industry and it's, it's massive. And so all of the wood gets chipped and turned into paper or chipboard or whatever you can do with chips. And, um, you know, the, the logging has become more mechanized and on a larger scale, and it feels uh, sort of like uh, a little more apocalyptic in terms of, of the degree of, you know, just, uh, just how much destruction there is, really. They're just taking everything out. So that's very specific to, like, right around where I grew up, but that's happening all throughout the Northwoods as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people that's their their eye opener when they realize what they had is no longer what they had. Um, you know, if it's a lack of wildlife or the you know yeah. a change in the forests or or an overabundance of deer that that have are are changing the way we look at our forest or or anything like that. I think that's a big eye opener for a lot of people. And I was just curious if you if you sense that change because I think of certain parts of Maine just being untouched. I wouldn't even thought about the logging industry and, and, and changing that. Yeah. Most of Maine is logged mm-hmm. like wow. uh, about a half or more of the state is unpopulated, which a lot of people don't know because it's sort of impo- like hard for people to understand something on the East coast is devoid of people, <laughs> yeah. but it's a massive area. You know, the rest of new England fits in Maine and a good percentage of that is, is just, quote unquote managed woodlands, which basically mean they whack it really hard and just cut it, you know, and they spray pesticides on it for to manage spruce budworm and all these different things. And it's basically an industrial scale operation. And they try to keep that from the public's awareness because it's it's pretty devastating. Yeah. I guess if there's no one there it's pretty easy a lot of the time to keep keep people away from it. Moving into your book a little bit, what what about your upbringing and then then your career inspired you to write a book and that's that's great like why and why now like why now did you feel it was a time for this i think um it's actually a good segue because some of what i would say the sort of misdirection of our culture and society in terms of just treating nature as a quote-unquote resource is um you know enormously misdirected and um i i'm interested in in offering up other perspectives and also solutions and one thing 
that made me um, jump the opportunity to write this book was the fact that, you know, what I learned, I already knew lawns were very detrimental environmentally, but I learned that lawns take up an area in this country, mowed turf accounts for an area the size of Washington state. And so if there's any way that I could at least encourage a conversation about why that's the case, and then also give people some tools um, regard in ways for them to sort of get out of that pickle that we're in, um, then it seemed really worthwhile and, and worth a shot. So um, that's really what, what inspired me. So early in the book, before we go into the meat and, uh, meat and potatoes about the book, early on in the book, you mentioned about like finding a middle ground to helping the environment. Do you feel that that people are ready to read this book? Because I think you're going to have people that are you're never going to change, and that's okay. There are those people, and then there's people that want it to the extreme and think that everyone should have this. And like the middle ground doesn't always seem to exist, <laughs> and I, I feel that this is a great middle ground approach. Do you, do you think that everyone's ready for that now? I think, as you point out, not everybody is. There's always people that sort of see things in stark terms. And, you know, in regard to lawns, there's obviously a lot of people in this country that absolutely are passionate about lawns. They love them. And that's just, you know, that's something that we have to live with right now. And um, I think I'm I'm kind of asking the question of those people, well, like, why do you need as much as you do Mm -hmm. you know if you don't use it if you spend a lot of money on it if it has an enormous ecological impact if it you know releases carbon into the atmosphere all these different things you know do you really need that and so at the same time people get very uh, adamant about you know there should be no lawns and it's like well you know we need places to play kids need to play we need we have sports fields it's also nice to be able to have pathways through things like meadows so you don't have to brush against grass and worry about ticks there are all these different benefits for grass but they have for them to be truly beneficial it has to be practical and also um you know we it also has to be something that doesn't require a huge amount of resources and so that's i think the middle ground is something that a lot of people are interested in and with lawns we've kind of ended up in a relatively extreme place and i don't think people really it was a sort of gradual progression i don't think people really thought about it and so people are i think looking for middle ground and personally my approach is generally in that direction because um i don't think sort of extreme dogmas one way or another are generally helpful (laughs) yeah i I thought it would be good for a lot of our listeners just to start off and, and talk about lawns and, and what some of the positives are, turf lawns and, and some of the negatives. I did want to say though the one interesting thing about reading your book that I – I guess I probably should have known this, but it didn't occur to me is the jump in lawn from the creation of the lawnmower. Um, yeah, it was really fascinating to research the history of lawns and um, – everything really changed when the mechanical mower was invented because up until that point, you basically had to hire a bunch of serfs to cut your lawn with scissors or sides or, you know, yeah. and so the only people that had lawns were the, the um, gentry basically in England and then in, on the continent in Europe, you know, the aristocracy as well were able to, to upkeep lawns, but no one else really was. So it was seen as this sort of, uh, you know, vaunted 
social privilege. And once mowers became available, um, then people kind of gravitated towards that. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's interesting. One thing I learned about mowers is that it's also mowers kind of created the advent of professional sports because you can mow yeah. athletic fields. And um, yeah, so mowers are a big part of that. And then in the fifties, when gas powered mowers became ubiquitous and cheap, it really became something of like, you can just, everyone can do this. Every, everyone can be an Earl or a count, you know, and you can have this beautiful tended expanse. And then the lawn industries pushed this even further where it used to be that clover was part of a lawn. It was understood that it was helpful and it fixes nitrogen and it benefits the lawn. And then the lawn industries pushed the whole thing further and further so that you can have a field or, you know, have something that looks like a professional athletic field, but really it's just the industry kind of just trying to make more money and they've really pulled people in and kind of, you know, a combination of, I guess it's a, a bit of a dance where people want that perfection and they want the sterility of a lawn to keep nature at bay, so makes them feel safe. And then at the same time, the industry has been encouraging this heavily. Well, that's, we, we talk about all the time, like throughout the course of a year, I'll get tons of advertisements for, uh, perfect lawns for lawn treatments for spraying spraying for mosquitoes but you don't get the advertisements for create a meadow you you know it's it's there's a lot of money in that industry and it's it's a multi-billion dollar business and how do you yeah and how when you start when you start talking about the positives of doing something like a meadow then it comes across as well who's right you know, I, right. I see this all the yeah. time, but you're just telling me, what do you know? You know, I, I find that they start to trust the advertisements as factual mm-hmm. because of course of just yeah. the amount they get and over time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And it's yeah. one, for whatever reason, one of the things he said um, early on about how this was a sign of, uh, of wealth, having a lawn was almost a sign of wealth. And it reminds me of a. Uh, current day how um when they build houses how they put like just the brick facade on the front that's the same concept there it's just oh yeah we have this big expensive brick house but it's really just something over the front i don't know i don't know why that popped in my head but well it is all it is all about that in the end and that that sort of social desire we have to you know flaunt status in some way and it's a human weakness that we have. And ultimately, I think what I'm really sort of asking people and to think about in general and in the book is how big of a footprint do you need? Because mm-hmm. really, I'm not trying to come at it from like a fear perspective or a, dog, a dogmatic perspective, because obviously we have some pretty big issues, climate change, all sorts of things. Um but the real question is, is if, if you want to sort of be responsible about how you're part of this planet, how much do you need? Yeah. How much lawn do you need? You know, and so I don't think people have honest, to be fair to everyone, I don't think people have really thought about that because industry and advertising and everything and our desire for status has just been pushing us in this in this other direction. So I want to. I'm sorry. Go I ahead, was going to say, and that's one of the points that, that Dr. Townley brings up quite a bit too, is how much lawn do you need? And like, yeah, 
Tarp has some really good advantages and um and corrosion control, things like that. Like I can I can see that. And for just being able to walk on, to play on, those kind of mm-hmm. things. But like mm-hmm. you're saying, how much do you actually need if you're if you have kids and they're playing in this twenty by twenty area of your, your lawn? Well, you need that. That's a good spot. If you want to get back to your vegetable garden, yeah, you need a little bit of lawn there to walk on because you're just there's not very many native plants that are adapted to continued uh, foot traffic. Um, I don't know of any actually. But do you but, need two acres of mowed but lawn? Yeah, like I'm no. thinking about my home. Yeah, we use the backyard a lot, but mm-hmm. we're almost never in our front yard. And the only reason we really have a, a lawn there, and I've been chipping away and making a little bit less uh, each year, but. The only reason we have a lawn there is because it's on a highly trafficked road and we don't want people to think we're crazy while they're driving by, which is just a, a perceived misconception, I'm, really. it's It doesn't matter what they think. I'm curious, too, and I don't know if this is something this, that you kind of noticed when you're doing your research. Just if you look at lawn sizes, I would say that's had to have changed probably over just the last like 20 to 30 years. Like as a kid, I don't remember anyone having a, a lawn bigger than a fifth of an acre, quarter of an acre, uh, at least where I grew up. But now mm-hmm. all the new houses, they're an acre, two acres, three acres. I know where I where I just moved from, it was 10-acre building lots. So And, and it's not wooded, I'll, yeah. I'll tell you that. So I don't know if that comes into play somewhere. I, that I actually could. did some research on this for a presentation, and they're actually saying the lawn size – in comparison, the house has shrunk. There's okay. been a lot of lot restrictions, but the houses have gotten so much bigger, which has its own mm. problems because you're creating more impervious surface there. Um, yeah, it was. I did a whole thing about the population changes and and how basically same concept. We're losing a lot of our our natural spaces, and our my point was our uh, people per household has drastically reduced over the last 50 60 years okay. our population in that same time frame as a, a country has i think nearly doubled i think my, since my dad was born and he was born in 1954 the population is nearly tripled of the united um, states or no the, maybe it was of the world i can't remember exactly i did this like three four years ago okay. but i remember finding that house size the actual footprint of the house had gotten bigger where the lawn in comparison gotten a little bit smaller yeah and it's my my last house was an acre and a half, and it's it's amazing if you've never taken care of an acre and a half of lawn how much work it is to take <laughs> and how much time it takes to 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 take care of that for something something that doesn't provide that much ecological value. Uh, and then you start really quickly going, why why am I doing this? It costs a lot of money. Uh, people put. Billion, tens of billions of dollars into lawn care every year. It's, and, and so, you know, people are economically minded and that's a good question to ask oneself is, is it worth sinking thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars into this space that you never use? And that's, that's important. But I think what you just mentioned about the ecological disadvantages of lawns, that's important for people to know. Like when I was researching the book, I learned things like, just filling lawnmowers accounts for 17 million gallons of lost fuel a year. That's according to the EPA. And that's a similar amount of uh, volume that was leaked out of the Exxon Valdez. You know, that's just filling lawnmowers. So we're talking about all that carbon being burnt going into the atmosphere. At the same time, um, lawns are very shallow rooted. They don't really fix carbon. They require 
a lot of resources in the ter- in form of water. Some cities in the summer, 60% of the water use is going on to lawns. In places like the arid west, it's like, it's insane that people are even putting water on grass. And then you're talking about chemicals. And even if you're using organic fertilizer, that stuff still runs off some. And all of this ends up in the waterways. The list is really long. Um, they found one last example is they found that with um, pesticide use on lawns that homeowners use 10 times as much as conventional agriculture. Conventional agriculture, um, the farmers are trained at least how, whatever you think about pesticides and herbicides, they use them according to the standards that they're taught. Homeowners just pour that stuff on things and there's no controls at all. So they use more. So that really adds up to massive amount of uh, chemical use. Yeah. And one thing I'll, I want to emphasize there is, uh, when we talk about how much gas is spilled filling lawnmowers and lawn equipment um, with that and it being more than that Exxon Valdez oil spill, that's also every year. <laughs> so that's like that exactly. still happening yearly. Now it's yep. spread out. It's diluted. I guess that was the old phrase, right? The solution yeah. dilute, or pollution is dilution. <laughs> yeah. It's diluted across the entire country, but um, that's not really a, a big thing. And then the other part was uh, – the stat that kept going around was there's 40 million acres of lawn in the country, which is more than there is in acres in corn production, acres in soy production yep. and all that. And, um, yeah, the, like you said, those farmers are using most of the time those pesticides as prescribed by the label. And there's – but homeowners are just – so now you have homeowners – and that's also including golf courses and municipal areas and places where they do have licensed practitioners putting it down and probably are following the label. But, um, yeah, you have people who aren't trained to use this stuff that are going, and it's an area that's larger than the amount of corn that's in the country and the amount of soybeans that are in the country. So it's a huge, huge area that this is happening to. And one of, one of the stats you mentioned in your book, too, that I hadn't thought about was just that when you're using lawn equipment, it's not necessarily regulated in the same way like with, with vehicle emissions. It's not as if. Yeah, I was just thinking the same thing because I remember that statistic that running a uh, a commercial mower, like a four foot wide deck mower that most lawn care companies use, running one of those for an hour is the equivalent of driving a 2017 Camry 300 miles. Mm-hmm. One hour. So, you know, people do a lot of hand wringing about their car and all these different things, but people haven't really thought about what the impact is with their lawns and what, what goes into it. And, you know, that's why I started also with the money, with the financial picture, because it's just like, do we really need to spend tens of billions of dollars mowing grass? And I think ultimately it's been convenient for people. It's not just a status thing. It's not just industry, Um, pushing them in a direction. It's also that people have been kind of taught to be scared of nature and they're scared of ticks and they're scared of mosquitoes and they're scared of all these different things. And there's definitely risk there that is important to be aware of and to be careful of. But um, it goes back to this concept that I mentioned earlier of ecological illiteracy in the sense that people don't know how to manage these things, you know? And one of the things I think I mentioned in the book is like, if you put in a meadow, and you end up with more mosquitoes, put in bat houses. Bat houses can eat, bats will eat 
like a single bat can eat 3000 mosquitoes in a night and they prefer mosquitoes eat lots of mosquitoes. That's what they do. You know, so there are these ways to balance things using ecological approaches that can create safety and well-being. But one of the reasons in it, that I mentioned this is because lawns make people feel safe. They feel like, you know, it keeps predators at bay and, and problems at bay. You know, it's at, at one point with my property, I, I started calculating the amount of hours that I would spend maintaining it and not like not the trees, the shrubs, the landscape, but just the turf. And I started looking at it. So not only the amount of, of my personal time I was wasting towards this, that really you get nothing for it when you're on your deathbed. It's just time you don't get back. But time I was spending keeping – like harming the food web in my area or not providing uh, ecological balance. So there was an area in the back of my property that was wet that really didn't want to be mowed that I let go and it, it was coming up tussock sedge and soft rush and things like that. Obviously, it was it was pretty wet. And I started with turning that into a meadow and just the amount of birds. Like I would start mm-hmm. to see skunks. I would start to see so much. And maybe there are things that people don't want near their house, but there are things that I welcome that, mm-hmm. wow, look at this. And and I wasn't a, a neighbor favorite, but <laughs> when it bloomed, it, it was a different story. Like they, mm-hmm. they kind of understood. So I'm curious, before we start talking about meadows, you mentioned in your book early on like some of the the hardships of talking to people about some of these theories. Do you find mm-hmm. that you have a much more educated customer base or are people coming to you especially now that you're established already knowing what you do and because they want that or are you still finding a large amount of education um when when dealing with with new customers? I'm I mostly have people that find me because they're interested in the approaches that I use, which is a really you know, as a professional, it's a, a blessed thing to experience. I've been doing this for over two decades. And, you know, when I started um, in the early 2000s, people didn't know it. People didn't know about this stuff. It was still very, very alternative. And it's still somewhat alternative, but it's becoming a mainstream conversation, especially even just in the last two years, for whatever reason um, that's happening. And so there's a lot more interest in this. There's a lot more of a higher level of education around it that's you know and we've seen a lot of great great documentaries coming out like like kiss the ground and we we were fortunate enough to have ray archuleta on here it actually made me you made me think of him when you're talking about the arid southwest because that's where ray grew up and he's like you know they spend all their water maintaining lawn and the reason why they have a lack of water is because they chop the trees down and put the lawn in so you have less water because of this and now you're using what little resources you have to maintain it and it just was blowing for, his for, mind. yeah for nothing for <laughs> no there's no economic thing that's you're getting back from that it's not like you're growing food it's it's just for status it's essentially vanity and yeah. <laughs> really really you know ultimately most we create all of our ecological problems and we suffer under them and that's a prime example like they cut down all the trees that you know the the uh aquifers aren't being recharged all these different things are happening and it's because we're just kind of sleepwalking into the future thinking that you know we've made it and it's important to not I think disregard the the sort of march of progress in the sense that 
we used to like, it used to be very difficult for people to survive in this world. And we've come a very long way in regard to that. And I mentioned that in terms of, you know, modern medicine and things like that. But at the same time, we've come very far and we've learned a lot. And so now I think it's time to kind of like put the best of both worlds together so that we can actually have some balance there. You know, it's, I I think, Kiss the Ground is a great example where we're saying you don't necessarily see the advertisements for doing the right thing. It's always the big business, and that's one instance where money was put to to show the right thing. But I think it's interesting if you go back and look at some of the comments like on social media or even conversations I had with people that they just view that as propaganda. <laughs> like uh, this is just propaganda. You're trying to… You know, we don't believe these issues exist. Have you ever had anyone negatively say your book is propaganda? Not at this point in time. I'm sure I'll get that at some point. And essentially, essentially I'd say, yeah, you're right, you know, because it's all propaganda. It's like, in the sense, it's all just someone pushing a perspective. And that's why I kind of pose some of these things as questions where it's like, you figure it out. Like, do you need that much lawn? You know, it's like, what propaganda do you want to believe ultimately? Because it's all just a matter of perspective. Oh, completely, completely. so we talked about why lawns are, are have negative consequences. What's the alternative? So the alternative is to essentially um, create something that's low maintenance, that doesn't require inputs in the same way. It doesn't require fertilizer. It doesn't require uh, water. It doesn't require regular mowing, and it's low maintenance. So meadows are a really big part of that um, potential solution because they check all those boxes and meadows once they're established are extremely low maintenance. They need to be mowed once a year and that's it really. And um, the trick is to get them to establish and there is sort of a, a period of transition that has to happen that is is uh, sometimes with perennial meadows can take two or three years. But once they're established, they're in, and they're really easy to take care of. So I know in, in your book you outline a lot of the positives of having a meadow, and, and I'd like you to kind of approach that. But to me, one of the most important things that you mentioned was soil health, and that's – you know we always talk about it all the time. That's one of the most important things you can have, like a living soil. So how does – we, we know that having a turf lawn can contribute to the degradation of, of your soil. How do meadows kind of rejuvenate that? Yeah, so meadows, um, meadows are very, very deep-rooted, and so that helps condition the soil in, in a number of ways. But one of the big ones is that meadows are able to sink a lot of carbon because of their deep-rootedness and their perennial nature. So they're taking in carbon dioxide and they're splitting it, keeping the carbon molecules, turning those into starches and sugars. And like all plants, they share some of that with organisms that live in the soil, and that carbon ends up in that sort of food chain in the in the earth with mycelium and and microbes and when those die they stay in the earth and so um, also when the roots die from meadow plants they stay in the ground and over the course of time all this uh, what all the studies are showing is that meadows sequester an enormous amount of carbon very significant amount um, up there with forests and oceans in terms of being able to sink carbon so this is something that you can do 
in your own yard and lawns are doing the opposite. You know, there's some people that claim lawns can sink carbon, but if you add up the whole process of what goes into keeping a lawn, uh, the vast majority of them are putting significant amounts of carbon into the atmosphere. So meadows really offer a solution to that. They're not the only solution, but they're fairly low hanging fruit, um, fairly easy to make happen and very easy to maintain. Do you, do you get feedback from some former uh, customers where maybe they have their first aha moment after a meadow's in and they see like uh, maybe their first bird that they haven't noticed or a butterfly that they hadn't seen before? Do you get that kind of the luxury of getting that feedback? Yeah, it's a, that's a lot of fun and it happens all the time. I got one a couple of weeks ago. Um, it was after the first snowfall and someone sent me a picture of some birds like eating from seed heads of some meadow plants and that is part of the educational process. You know, I'm constantly showing people and educating people about the value of these types of landscapes. And when people see it, it really changes their perspectives a lot. And having wildlife around like that is a big part of it. And I'm, I'm just thinking about this and I know it's a little off topic, but it kind of ties in. Um, do you have conversations with some of your clients about leaf removal? Is that something that ties yeah, in? Yeah. You know, with like, for example, with meadows, I encourage people to cut their meadows in the spring. Um, and one of the reasons is that it allows insects and um, to overwinter in the plants. Sometimes there's larvae or eggs. Um, and also it provides food for birds. Um, and yeah, leaving leaves down is something that is really, really beneficial for insects and animals overwintering like frogs sometimes will like wood frogs and tree frogs and things like that and and all sorts of insects use the leaflet uh, leaf litter as an insulator so yeah i think um that's part of that sort of education process and you know letting people know that these uh, approaches have an enormous amount of value what would what would be for, – for someone that's interested, we just pique someone's interest and they're, they're saying, you know, I really don't need this much lawn and maybe I should look at a meadow. What What is some advice that you would give to someone just starting out or just thinking about this? I know Tom, one of the, the best pieces of advice he gives is start small because <laughs> I know we yeah, all have – That's a that's a <laughs> great piece of advice. And I would say like start, you know, jump in, but – Starting small can be good because then you can learn the ropes. And I also, in my book, I suggest like if you aren't confident or you don't have someone on board who's an expert or has experience and you just want to try it yourself, find a space too, like in your backyard that you don't have to worry about people commenting on or, you know, dealing with what your neighbors think. So going small, taking off a bite, you can, you can deal with it. It's, it's reminiscent of what you said earlier about letting that wet area in your yard um, actually grow up. Kind of go in steps that you're comfortable with and it's a progression and it's really about engagement and learning what works. And when you're dealing with plants and ecology, it is all a matter of what works. There's no right way to do it. You know, it's about what gets results and what works. So if you start engaging and start playing around, you'll, you will start to get results. Some of them you might not like at first, but that's even more valuable in a way because it teaches you what to avoid and leads to success in the long run. So one, one of the things that we employed at our house this year, which I thought was interesting, my fiance was very concerned about 
what the neighbors would think if we didn't clean up the leaves. And that's a conversation yep. that that we we had like probably for the last two months. Like, yep. if you look like there there are fanatics, and you could see the people that spend all their time on their lawn. And she's like, you know, I know if we don't clean up the leaves. They're going to blow on the neighbors' lawns who just spend all their time cleaning up their leaves, and we're not going to be very popular. So we had a real long talk about it, and we thought for starting out, it would maybe be a good idea to clean up the leaves in the front yard mm-hmm. and then not clean up the leaves. Our backyard kind of leads to a natural area, and it's it's surrounded by fence. So we're like, why don't, why don't we leave the leaves in the back, and we'll clean up the front. The front is such a small portion of the property anyway, so we we kind of play nice with the neighbors, but we're kind of getting to do what we want to do. Mm-hmm. And we noticed by doing that that the neighbors on both sides of us also did not clean up the leaves in their back. I think they were having the same exact <laughs> yeah. conundrum like we don't really want to do it. And by us not doing it, it kind of like let everyone near us know it was OK to not do it. Mm-hmm. And I was very happy about that. <laughs> Happy about that, great, but great story. Um, but not everyone has a, a great success story like that. Mm-hmm. So, have, and, and that's one of the reasons I always say to start small. And you had a great story in your book of of I think it was a college that wanted to do this, and they did this whole big area, and the first year it failed um, <laughs> just because they they missed a couple steps. And that's one of the reasons I always give advice and say start small because it's a lot harder to fix it once you've if you open up the soil and you haven't gotten rid of all the weed seed in the seed bank and now you're opening up the more weed seed it can be really hard to then overcome that um the, the weeds that you just let in uh so that's why i would Absolutely. say well, start small but can you talk a little bit more about what happened there and then how they rectified that situation yeah that was a, a hampshire college in amherst massachusetts they um they had put in a meadow um and it was i think yeah there were some steps that were missed and it didn't it didn't look good in the first year and that's not unusual for mm-hmm. for perennial meadows but i don't think um that they educated people about that and so that was part of it but also there were a few steps that were missed and they had to replant it and they did it right the second time and it was far more successful. It's, it's in and it's, it's established. So um, that's kind of a happy ending, but it's, it's coming from a community where there's a commitment to that process. So they didn't just stop it. I think in a lot of scenarios, it would have aborted the whole you know, meadow effort and they would have just gone back to lawn. In fact, I just had a client who I think became impatient and it's a very small area, but she converted it back into lawn, you know, because things were going too slowly for her and too slowly can be two or three years. And Mm -hmm. so there's tricks that I've been using. Um, I've been incorporating some annual uh, flowers as a nurse crop or in with the nurse crop Mm -hmm. um, when planting a meadow and that can make an enormous difference difference. But um, I want to go back to the whole uh, point you're making, Tom, about starting small and how important that is, because it's like, unless you have the knowledge and experience of how plants behave, Mm -hmm. when you're, say, planting a meadow from seed, then there's a lot of nuance in there. And the way you learn that is by doing it. But if you're just starting out in your front lawn, um, and you've never done it before, 
it's tricky. And so you could run into problems and then you're, you're, you're less likely to win people over. So the thing that wins people over is when things look good. Mm -hmm. And that's what, that's what the general public cares about. So it's terribly important to kind of keep our eyes on that prize if we want this to kind of go anywhere. We've, we've definitely, because our, our products going for, all large restoration projects, we, we've seen, seen our fair share of failures and successes. And actually, I've been doing some site visits over the last couple of weeks. And it's, you know, some of the some of the failures are, are still an education because one was at a park and they they were trying to retrofit a basin into um, a bioretention basin. And the, the park helped handled it as if they would handle turf and not wildflower seeds. So there were definitely failures on that behalf just because they, they didn't know. They they, they exactly. didn't know the nuances or the difference. So and unfortunately everyone was hoping for that to be a showpiece to have them do more. And it's now it's kind of hidden in the back and not performing well. And it was going back saying, all right, what do we have to do to make sure this performs well? Um, but there was another basin too that it, it kind of got changed because it was a huge basin and it, it failed. It, it stopped and instead of water uh, um, going away within 24 to 48 hours, it wasn't draining. And it, it was surrounded by wetlands, but they decided, hey, let's just make this you know, a living wetland then. Let's, let's do that because you could see even though it had failed, the amount of wildlife it had attracted in an area that didn't have a lot of wildlife was amazing. And at least they saw the value in that and said, all right, maybe it doesn't have to be what we thought. Maybe we could shift gears and at least – get this value or this advantage out of it so it's even from a a larger professional standpoint we still see it's it's still a learning process and we still see failures it's just how you react and uh, and hopefully it it, hopefully it's not a failure that prevents other people from wanting to do it and we've seen that where it was high profile it was done incorrectly it failed everyone's like i'm not doing that Exactly. Um, so it's important to be aware of how things are perceived and, and sort of to be uh, strategic about how you go about projects. And I think it's also really important to underscore what you were just saying, where people think that someone like myself or someone like you have been involved with plants for a long time, that you know everything. And it's like, it's the opposite. The more you learn about plants, the more you realize you're just getting started. And it's this lifelong learning process. And when you throw into the conversation ecology, you know, which is an incredibly complex thing. It's not just horticulture. We're talking about all these other factors. It's even more complex. And we're also coming from a place where we, you know, we're not taught much. We don't, we don't know much. There's that ecological literacy. And so there's that expression in horticulture. You don't know, you don't know a plant until you kill it. And (laughs) that is how, I've learned so much is by making mistakes. And the reason that I was able to write this book and the reason I'm able to share a lot of my perspective is because I've had the chance, the opportunity to make mistakes and I have to correct them. I have clients, Mm -hmm. I have to fix it all. But in that process, you know, there's, there's a lot of learning and usually it's just like, a single species won't establish or, you know, the failures are generally pretty minor in the mm-hmm. scheme of things. But over the course of a couple of decades, you really learn what plants do, how things behave. And, and those failures are gold in the long run. You know, it's 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 really a, a two way conversation a lot of the times. And that two way conversation may be you and nature or you and a client um, 
you know, one of the the sites that we visited last week that there was an issue, someone had made a suggestion and I just kind of stopped. I'm like, I don't know that you can make a suggestion without knowing what the customer is trying to accomplish. So their question, I responded back with two questions and they responded back with two more questions. And it was a lightning round of questions and no answers probably for a good 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of go back and you you rethink it and figure out where you need to go. So where you think you're going at first may even change over time based on what you want or what you're trying to accomplish or just what you have accomplished. It's um, a great point and, and a really important point because the thing with lawns is that it's really this top-down authoritative approach where it's like every week and a half, I'm going to go out and I'm going to mow this. It's always going to look the same. Nothing's going to change. It's scheduled. It's regimented. And that's that. And with ecology and plants, if you're really engaging in a way that is authentic, it is a conversation and you're learning from the feedback. And certainly as a designer working with with clients, that's also the case. If you actually want to give people what they want, you need to have that conversation. And, and I would imagine, like you said, you had someone that that converted some of their lawn and ended up converting it back because they were a little impatient. But I'm sure on the other end, you've had people that maybe were a little skeptical, had great results, and said, "Do it all," <laughs> you know. And Absolutely. Maybe, and that's not what you were probably expecting either. So it's. Um, you know, I'm sure that conversation, even though it's a two-way conversation, it's always changing, and it's that's I guess both good and bad. But it's that's how you get the best results. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Making changes can always be hard too. And you brought up uh, that you kind of get in the routine of your your yard maintenance, mowing and clean up, and all that kind of. It's a routine, not just year to year, but in many cases week to week. And uh, I always liken it to. Uh, you have your your cell phone provider. I have Verizon. Well, yeah, T-Mobile's on TV telling me how much money I could save all the time and how more their service is better. But I haven't switched in ten years. Same thing with car insurance and everything. It's sometimes it's just convenient, even though you recognize you could, in that case, save money or or have less work or have things that are uh, benefiting you. You're just in a sense of complacency. It's just a lot easier to keep doing what you're doing. So making that change can be really, really hard. But that wanted I, to, to – I know you can relate real quick. Like yeah. sometimes – like I have two children who are now grown, and at times when they were younger, I needed that that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. that yes. monotonous I, I mowing that. <laughs> that Tom has a, 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 a younger son. Um, sometimes you needed that break just where you could mm-hmm. do something thoughtless and and chill out. But you can get that. In other ways, you just – it works for you now and you like that escape. But maybe that escape could be you're gardening and you're you're looking at birds and, and Lepidoptera and things like that. It's just a different – it's making that first step, yep. which is yeah. maybe the hardest step. Um, well, it's a, re- it's a really good point because people – that's one reason people like mowing lawns a lot of times. And it's like there's some industry involved. You're doing something. You're making it happen. Mm-hmm. So people in your family are satisfied. Yeah. Like, you know, you're not just wasting your time. But it gives you that time on your own to be meditative or just be outside. But there's other ways to do that for sure. Oh, definitely. Definitely. What are um, – and I'm assuming we kind of touched on this before we got sidetracked a little bit. Um about just kind of getting neighbors on board with what you're doing, especially when it's changed or maybe something different than what they're accustomed to. Um, do you have any good tips or have you seen any good stories with 
just the best way to help get your neighbors on board with with what you're trying to accomplish. They don't necessarily have to do it themselves, but at least so you don't feel like the the pesky neighbor who's who's doing something different. Absolutely, and I think um, that's a very important question because um, people are in general. Uh, sort of cautious, if not even hostile towards getting rid of lawn for the reasons you mentioned earlier about leaves blowing in or, you know, weed seeds or whatever their concerns might be, um, including pests or what gets seen as pests. Um, So I find that the most important part is education and really just like talking to people and letting them know what you're doing. And um, that at least will be a very good gauge of also what you're dealing with. In some cases, it's outright hostility and people don't want you to put in a meadow. And then you can at least make your choice from there. Some people don't care and they're just like, you know, I'd rather uh, not live through an ecological collapse and have my neighbors be mad at me. Um, And they make that choice, you know, so but at least if you engage, you know where thing where people are at and you can let them know what you're doing. And along those lines, one of the best ways to do that is to put up signs or to put up signage and explain to people what you're doing. Um, you know, and a- another thing um, that can be helpful is say if you are turning a part of your lawn that's visible into meadow is to maybe keep the outside edge mode or frame it in some way with mowing. So it looks, so people know it's intentional. A lot of times if you let your lawn go in any way, or if you don't clean up your leaves, or if you make these choices, people think it's, um, it's something bad happened. Basically (laughs) (laughs) they're like, you got sick or you're, you know, you got laid off and you can't pay for it or whatever it is. It thinks there's some sort of negative connotation one way or another. So, um, education signage outreach is very important. And then, you know, if you're dealing with homeowners associations or municipalities that have ordinances, a lot of times you can't even put in a meadow if you want to. So you have to kind of start addressing that on a community wide um, basis. So really there's a lot of outreach and education that is almost just as important as the act of getting rid of lawn. Those are all, that's great advice. Yeah. Yeah, Fantastic advice. It all came down to the same thing is, People just want to know that there's some purpose behind what you're doing. It's not um, like I, we talk about signage for, for this kind of stuff. You know, it's just a native garden. A lot of people were like, oh, this is doing something. It's not just that they don't care about how it looks or they, they have poor taste in plants. It has other purpose. And they might not appreciate that purpose, but at least they have, know that there's intent there. And uh, is- and a lot of people, that is enough to, to change their mind that, that it's a good thing versus an eyesore. Yeah. That's a really good point. And in general, most people are pretty tolerant of these things. There's always some people who are um, really wedded to like bonds or how that looks. And, but at the same time, if you, if, if people kind of are involved and they know what's happening and that there's intent behind it, it can go a really long way, especially when in the long run, something starts to shape up and there's butterflies around or there's Mm -hmm. a lot of beautiful flowers or it's got these gorgeous grasses in the middle of winter when everything's really bleak and people are like oh right now i see it you know so it it can take time to educate people but starting that process early goes a very long way and it's it's good to point out too just expectations because some things are you know some things are lower maintenance but that doesn't mean that they're no maintenance also like we've seen 
for us that over the last decade, the biggest buzz has been has been rain gardens. Everyone wanted to have them, and even though they're lower maintenance than a lot of other other things you could do, it doesn't mean there's no maintenance. So we would have we would see rain gardens get installed that were great for two years until they built up so much sediment that they stopped working properly, and they just thought mm-hmm. that they were no good, and the rain garden was gone. There's a, a brewery by me that did rain gardens all around their property, and they didn't think of or manage for invasives. And it mm-hmm. took over, so now there's no more rain gardens. The sign's still there, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but it's all turf. And it's, you know, because it's the, the concept was there, but I guess their expectation was mm-hmm. unknown or unrealistic. So it's good to, to mention that first, you know, even though it is nature and, and it is lower maintenance, that sometimes there are some steps, you know, like it's still like with the meadow, you still preferably want to mow once a year. Um, you, not that you have to, but there's just to to know that you know, like I I think the whole rain garden thing soured a lot of people because they they had f- success and then failure and then just said I don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think uh, that that's a really important point because people have expectations and ultimately um, when you're dealing with trying to do something that's ecological the the sort of key there's a key component of that and that's engagement and that's like understanding the functions that make it ecologically valuable and what those are so like with a rain garden it's infiltration Mm -hmm. you know and so what i tell people like all my all the landscapes i build are low maintenance and so i'm constantly telling my clients that the most important thing they do is engage be out there and look at things. You don't even have to do anything. Just observe. So if that invasive plant shows up, if you have that one little knotweed sprig that shows up in your rain garden, you see it right away and you can get rid of it. And then it takes you 10 minutes as opposed to something that then later, if you don't notice it, it'll just take over everything and you'll never get rid of it. Um, so that level of engagement and, and learning and just uh, sort of figuring it out as you go is terribly important. And I think a lot of people like lawns and also and landscapes of that nature because they don't have to do anything. They don't have to think about it. But this is actually an invitation um, to engage with the earth, with nature, and to learn about that complexity, which is endlessly fascinating and will bring a lot of richness into your life if you actually do it. But it can be really fun. And also, um, it's generally not successful without that engagement, like your example of those rain gardens. Yeah, it's And it's important, you, you kind of hinted on it, like it's great that that you take these steps and do this wonderful thing for ecology, you have to enjoy it too. You have to remember to actually enjoy what you did and connect with it because this is what it's it's all about. It's one thing to have a meadow in your yard. It's another thing to get that connectivity that you had as a child to what you grew up with. You're, you're hoping to instill that in someone so they're not just doing what's right. They're becoming a part of it. And do you, Have you seen that change with some of your clients just – over time that like, wow, I, I wasn't expecting, I, I just thought I was doing something good. I didn't expect that I would enjoy it as much. I've seen it some, absolutely. And I think a lot of people come at this ecological focus because of climate change and essentially guilt for living in this culture that has essentially been destroying the planet. And 
that's a good impulse in certain ways because we need to take responsibility for how we live and its impact on other living things and our own health as well. Um, but at the same time, for me personally, I, I feel it's really important what you said that people need to enjoy this and it shouldn't be done out of a place of, you know, um, penitence or something like that (laughs) it's it's meant to be it's meant to be fun this is something that allows you to have monarchs in your yard it allows you to see rabbits it allows you to have bobcats in your yards that hunt those rabbits things that can be really interesting and yes that can be scary sometimes or it might mean you have to keep your cats in at night or whatever it is but it's all about kind of trying to engage with nature and 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 seeing what that does for us because it's incredibly enriching because that's what we're part of, you know, even in our modern society, we're still part of nature. Everything we make comes from the earth, you know? So in the end it can be a bigger pleasure than a lot of people really know. And um, I do have a lot of clients that come to that and realize how sort of magical essentially these spaces are because they start to be kind of charmed. Yeah, one of the things that uh, that Fran started to bring up with the rain gardens at the brewery is is so many people buy into the philosophy behind it. They understand the philosophy. They're really uh, a lot of times um, energetic. Then and they want to get involved in it, but they don't always know where to what the next step is or what everything that they're going to have to get into um, to get going. And uh, one of the things I love about your book is you kind of lay out some of those next steps. And then even further, some of the plants that you've had a lot of success with. Can you um, can you pick out some of your favorite plants that you you mentioned in your book? And I'll I'll preach on about it a little bit and say that there's charts and like what likes wet and dry and all the everything you could think of. There's a chart in there that kind of breaks all the plants down. But pick out some of your favorites that you like to work with. Yeah, I I, I would love to talk about that, and I, I want to just preface it by letting people know that as someone who's a quote unquote expert, I still use lists all the time. There's so many plants, you know, and if you really want to kind of be able to create a custom design in each scenario, it's important to kind of see what's to remember what's available. And so um, it's easy to rely on uh, just certain plants, um, And I do because some plants work really effectively and really well. But at the same time, I just wanted to mention that because people think, you know, you're an expert, you kind of know it all. Um, I still use like the the, uh, web filter on Prey Moon's nursery sometimes where it's like you can go in and you say, okay, I have full sun. It's, you know, partially wet. I want my plants, you know, I want my meadow to be three feet tall, three to four feet, and it's going to filter out all the plants that actually can do that. And so that's really, really helpful. And I just want to share that with your listeners as an approach, Mm -hmm. because I I use a number of nurseries, websites and catalogs and books for that purpose. Um, But one plant that I really have been um, espousing uh, pretty strongly is little blue stem and little blue stem is a native uh, warm season grass. It grows in clumps and grows, you know, two, three feet tall um, on average, but it works really well in meadows 
And that's because of its clumping nature and also because it uh, tends to stay upright throughout the winter. And it has this really beautiful kind of copper bronze color in the winter that provides a huge amount of aesthetic interest, um, but it also provides seeds for birds and wildlife. And it's a plant that can basically take uh, drought conditions. It can grow in very poor soil, which is a really wonderful thing about a lot of meadow plants is you don't necessarily need good soil to, to do it. So little blue stem is a plant that I'm um, often using and that I really um, kind of point to a lot. Um, but I don't have personally, um, you know, I, I kind of am focused on what works. And so a plant like little blue stem is, is one of those plants that I'm enthusiastic about because it checks so many boxes. That's awesome. And it's, it's hard, you know, we, we mentioned before, like our listeners are all over the, the, the country and every site is different. So you really have to know your sites to know, but like that's one that I've seen used in so many great ways. Yeah, it's, it's, it's got a wide range yes. that it can grow in. So it's something that it's, it's pretty versatile. I know Rutgers, when they design rain gardens, it's not what you consider a rain garden plant, but actually use it to diffuse energy coming out of inlets. Um, mm. They'll put it close by. So it's not necessarily being inundated, but it's, it's durable enough that it can divert that water energy and slow it down mm -hmm. so it's mm -hmm. it, it's such a great plant in so many ways and it's beautiful yeah, yeah. <laughs> so thank you um i'm just looking at the time we we could have we could easily talk for another hour <laughs> yeah, i was like I we so. should probably start We're just getting started here. yeah I, I know um so i i did want to ask one question like you you mentioned knotweed or and we're in the northeast where it seems to be a, a huge hot spot for invasives is that are you are you seeing is that i'm trying to think of how to phrase this is that an issue as far as success for some of the the projects that you're involved in it's you know because they can happen so quickly um do your clients see like have you had issues where like someone's doing a meadow and often all of a sudden invasives come in and and are hampering it it's something that I have to watch for and that I have to be very aware of and generally if there seems like there's pressure from invasives, then um, we've accounted for that and, and there's some sort of strategy to deal with that. Um, one of the reasons I encourage tilling initially for establishing meadows is because it really disrupts the uh, seed bank and gets the seeds that are already there to grow and then you can till them in and eliminate them. Um, so I really try to do a really careful prep work so that we're not dealing with invasives. And that's something that's really, really important because otherwise you end up having um, invasives uh, as part of your landscape that you're fighting. So we're really careful with the landscapes that, um, that we install at the same time, invasives are around and um, you know, sometimes it's, it's not worth fighting unless people are ready to uh, replace them with something that is going to have higher ecological value, but be able to keep those invasives out. And usually that means slightly taller plants or plants that are gregarious enough to hold their own once you get rid of the invasives. Just getting rid of invasives is sort of pointless in a way because you need something to fill that vacuum. I so... Um, that's something that, you know, 
I have clients that are ready to do on a smaller residential scale. It's less common on a, on a large scale. Um, but one thing that I really kind of um, try to just keep in mind when dealing with invasives is, you know, it's very practical um, project by project, but in general, on a larger scale, almost all of the issues with invasives isn't so much the plants, it's us, it's people. We're the ones that are creating the disturbances where Japanese knotweed shows up. Without those disturbances, there's no Japanese knotweed, even if it's seed bank is here, you don't see Japanese knotweed growing in um, established ecosystems that are stable. Mm -hmm. It doesn't grow there. It's very rare, but it does grow very happily in areas that we're destroying or disturbing or where there's erosion issues, all of these things. And so I think if we really want to solve the quote unquote problem, it's like we have to really look at our own uh, sort of impact in that. And then if we are trying to um, get rid of them, like I said, we have to have sort of an ecological strategy to follow up with that and not just try to get them out of the picture. You really need to put something in place that's going to last and hold its own ecologically. I I want to point out one key thing that you said is prep work. You know, we've seen projects, um, where like, hey, we're going to do a, a daylighting project, but the invasives weren't controlled prior to that. So instead of, you know, nurturing the seed bank, you got an outburst of invasives. So it's that prep work. If you know you have invasives, it's great to know that, do that work before you start, because otherwise you're 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 constantly behind the eight ball trying to 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 fix it instead of taking care of it ahead of time. So that was a great, great point. And they're basically everywhere, so you have to yeah. just kind of assume that they're around and look for that and make sure that they don't get that upper hand. And that's really what it is all about, is making sure that what is established is uh, viable in the face of invasives and can actually hold its own. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so this is the point of the podcast where we always – before I do that, did you No, have, that was okay. what I was looking at you for. Yeah, it's <laughs> – uh, I, I just I, – I don't – because like I said, we could easily talk for another hour. Yeah. So I'm trying to do this just so I I, I kind of reel it back. Yeah. Um, we always end the podcast with one simple question, although it's it's simple in nature. It's not easy to answer, and we find – so we, we kind of took off limitations. I'm going to ask you the question, but if you want to give multiple, that's fine. You're not being held to it. We won't come back and ask you a year from now and then say, oh, you can't change it. <laughs> it's – yeah, it can be just what is your favorite na- native plant, and it could just be at the moment. You can give us a few different categories. Uh, yeah, we're just curious what what your what your favorite plant would be, especially considering your your upbringing and your connection. It's a it's a I like your preface to the question because it is it's kind of like asking a parent what their favorite child is <laughs> to some extent, um, because you kind of need them all, and they're they're yeah. also valuable, and they they create the full uh, picture. But at the moment, a plant that I'm really um, smitten with and that, you know, has a lot of lore and intrigue attached to it is ginseng, American ginseng. And I have been, um, uh, along with some other people, playing around with uh, reestablishing ginseng from seed. You can buy... um, responsibly sourced uh, ginseng seed. Um, I have gotten some really good seed from United Plant Savers, which is a wonderful uh, plant restoration organization. And 
I've been um, playing around with planting that and ginseng, something that used to carpet the whole uh, sort of the whole East coast really was incredibly uh, prolific and it's a really important plant ecologically, but it was uh, removed from the landscape because of its enormous value of its roots. Um, and people still will, will poach it out of the woods for that reason. So um, one of the safest places it can be planted is in people's backyards because no one's going to take it there. And it's, it's a plant of high ecological value. And so um that's a plant that I've been interested in trying to um, encourage and help reestablish back in the landscape. That's a great, yeah. great choice and not one that anyone's ever said. I don't think so. Yeah. But I just wanted to share uh, – we had on – I can't remember what episode, but Dr. Emil DeVito from New Jersey Conservation Foundation. His One of his theories on that plant is besides the, the poaching is the deer pressure, and he could mm-hmm. think back of where he had seen it earlier in his career that nothing that was there is there because of deer pressure and he's been doing experiments as far as fencing areas off and seeing what's still in the seed bank and if it will come up and he's told us great stories about euonymus americanus and some other items or maple leaf viburnum that used to be part of the understory that you don't see anymore so i'm curious if if I hear more about that, I'll let you know too. Because I'm, I'm that's wondering. a really interesting little detail, and that that sounds uh, absolutely true. Because uh, there used to be so much of it to the point that grazing wouldn't be an issue, but now there's so little of it that grazing is an enormous issue. Yeah. So of course we don't want to say where any of those projects are. <laughs> you know, so if it comes up, they're safe. But I'll let you know uh, next time I talk to him. I'll I'll see if he has any any uh, update on that, and I'll I'd be happy to share with you. So Owen, the the way we end each episode is we each share a final thought. So we're going to let you go first, and you can promote something. Uh, really, you can sum up. You can really say whatever you want, and then Fran and I have our own final thoughts that usually are kind of wacky. <laughs> <laughs> but why don't you go first, and then then one of us will fill in behind you. Okay. So I'd, I'd like to um, just speak a little bit about um, this phrase that I've mentioned of ecological illiteracy, and it sounds, you know, kind of demoralizing in a way because it's it's a frank assessment of our culture and our level of knowledge which is extremely limited um perhaps almost non-existent and i just want to frame that by saying the reason i'm pointing it out is because it's really an invitation to engage with nature and with plants and with the ecological process um to learn more you know, so that we can start accumulating that information again and passing it on generationally so that children are actually coming into this world and learning about, you know, the value of these things and that it's, that it's something that's fun and enjoyable. And um, that's really, I think, a very important thing because without that engagement, it's not going to change. So um, I just want to underscore that and uh, encourage people to have fun doing it. And it can be as simple as planting one species in your front yard. That's going to attract pollinators and watching the butterflies that show up there and learning what they are. It can be very simple. And even if you just live in an urban setting, you could do that in a planter on a windowsill, you know, there's so many different ways to do that. And it's really just starting where you are with what you have and engaging with plants and animals and, and ecology. That is an awesome final thought. Oh, yeah. Tom, would, would you like me to go or do you I, want to go? I can go. All right. Because mine also, I love that phrase use of ecologically illiterate um, because I find that it's 
pretty true for most of the people that I interact <laughs> with. But uh, another thing that when you first introduce yourself, and I noticed with just about every guest we've had, is they've all grew up in nature in some way. Um, and it was sometimes it was their own fascination. They didn't grow in a house uh, up in a household that that appreciated nature, but they did, and they were playing in mud puddles and going to the woods and those kind of things. Well, I, you but know, I'm, even Sam Thayer was saying he yeah. his home life was so bad he became a lover of nature just so he had somewhere to go yeah. to not be home. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's but uh, just about every guest we've had is has had some even if they lived in the city. I think Emil was a case where he he grew up in in the city. And nature was an escape, but they all had something when they were growing up in their formative years where they interacted with nature. And if we want to get more people involved in, in moving this direction, we need to get more kids going out in nature. So if you have your own kids, probably you're bringing them out in nature, but if you have grandchildren, nephews, people, maybe their parents aren't bringing them into nature as much, maybe that's your place to fill in and... and Take little trips and expose them to the local park or pond or woods or those kind of things. Take them camping, fishing, any of those kind of things just to get that exposure because you never know who it's going to hook and and set off a career path in that. That, uh, But it's, it's just been a trend I've noticed with just about every single guest we've had. I don't know a single guest we've had that hasn't said that no. they, when we asked that question, what got them interested, they go back to when they were a kid and say, oh, it was because we had a field trip here or – I went to the woods behind my house. It, almost every single one has said something along those lines. Well, what's nice is everyone that we we've, we've spoken to genuinely loves what they do, yeah. and and you don't get that in every industry, which is funny. Mm-hmm. Like you can, I know a lot of people working in a lot of other industries that that hate what they do and love to change professions. But everyone we talked to was so good at what they do and love what they do, and I think that's it's nice that there's that connection that kind of drove you because you could even still love it and then say i don't want to do this but mm-hmm. we haven't and i'm sure there's instances we just don't know those people yeah. <laughs> but for the most part it it seems like a, such a mm-hmm. great connection um i think i think just to riff off of what tom said very quickly that for for people that haven't had the luxury i shouldn't even say luxury because it shouldn't be a luxury but unfortunately it is yeah. um but people that haven't had the chance to really connect to nature um and they don't know what that is, so to speak, it's incredibly enriching and fulfilling mm-hmm. in a way that very few things on this planet are. I agree. And it can't be matched. And so until you check it out yourself, you might not know what that feels like. And um, it's uh, incredibly satisfying in the end. Yeah. I'm, I'm even thinking now, like we have listeners from Jersey city and New York city, Philadelphia, a bunch of metropolises all over the East coast. And, even if they volunteer with uh, youth organizations there, it might be taking a field trip to some of these places, even if it's New York City and going to Central Park and looking at some of the exactly. natural things that are happening in Central Park. Yeah. Yeah. That can make a difference in someone's life that's going to make them more ecologically literate. There's a whole lot going on out there, whether you're walking on the High Line or looking at the maitakis that flush from under the giant oak trees in Central Park, or there's there's a lot of action everywhere, even in the East River. You know, it's it's happening. One one of my favorite places that I'm hoping we can have on as a guest at some point um, in Philadelphia, they when they there was an area that they kind of reclaimed and redesigned and they wanted to figure out they they did a tremendous outreach of how to connect the youth 
to this area, what they had to do, and it's called the Discovery Center at Fairmount Park. And it's they did such a great job of incorporating the local community and making sure that people would actually from the local community would go there and use it and learn and discover. And it was such a great design from start to finish that I I love that as far as an educational tool to to make people really see how enjoyable it is for people that don't have it in their backyard, but it's close enough that they can visit so and feel safe there and feel feel a part of it and feel a connectivity. So um kind of brings me to my final thought and i'm going in a little bit different of a direction for for everyone that's listening before we went on the air we talked about how broad the topic of ecology is and even though people may consider us experts i don't know that necessarily any of us feel (laughs) feel like experts i don't want to put words in anyone else's mouth but you know and and the big thing is we're we're building this so that you can have a personal connect with nature but it can be so overwhelming, and I've heard from people that some of these more in-depth episodes can be a little overwhelming. So networking is really important. You know, I, I couldn't do what I do without talking to all of these other people, people like Owen and, and Tom and, and some of our past guests. Um, it's important to have that little local connection, and you can meet people through local nonprofits if you're volunteering. The Facebook group is a great way to connect with other people that have similar interests, and you can – it's so broad. Don't feel overwhelmed. Have a support group, mm-hmm. uh, and, and and our community here for for work, we have a great support group of people that we can call and ask a question, and we do it all the time. Uh, no one here is uh, foolish to think that they know everything about about this topic. We don't, but we know people that know a lot about different aspects of it. We rely on them. They rely on us. We rely on each other. You can do the same as a community. Rely on each other to help each other. Progress and grow and make the circle bigger. That's the one thing we preach that it's great that we all do what we do, but it's only going to be meaningful and impactful if we can continue to grow and, and try to get everyone involved at some stage or another. So the more the more people that we can can get in this community and be kind and, and thankful and appreciative to have them in the community, that the better off we'll all be. All there right. you go. Wow. That was a good one, Fran. I kind of feel like I was <laughs> Like not even here, like that just came out of me. <laughs> You're viewing your this is like yeah, an outer body. I was experience. watching it from over here. <laughs> so, but that is it. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to Owen Wormser about his book Lawns in the Meadows. And uh, for more information, you can visit his website uh, for his company. That is uh, uh, www.abounddesign.com. And then um, we have a discount code for his book. We're going to put if it at the end of this episode. Yes. And it'll also be in the uh, the show notes as yes. well. So if, if you listen through, once you get to the end, after it says, thank you for listening, stay tuned for a special announcement, and we'll give you that, that but, special code. But you can find his book uh, through his publisher, Stonepeer Press, and that website is uh, stonepeerpress.org. Uh, backslash store backslash lawn dash into dash meadows so we'll have that on the show notes as well. yes obviously <laughs> so, obviously um thank you everyone for listening to native plants healthy planet presented by pinelands nursery uh we're giving a big thank you to the egocentric plastic men for contributing our theme music to this episode make sure you stream or buy their music wherever you consume your music and live music is back so if you're uh, local in philly uh go see them or another uh, local artist that you like and support them as well you can follow us on twitter at pineland nursery facebook at pinelands nursery nj instagram at pinelands nursery or native plants underscore healthy planet and also at youtube at pinelands nursery 
Uh, don't forget about the question and comment line. Call us at 215-346-6189. I will repeat that, 215-346-6189. Ask us a question or leave us a comment. When we play it on a future episode of The Buzz, we'll answer it to the best of our ability or we'll call a friend to, to help us out. And let's not forget the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. It just keeps growing, and everyone's been so wonderful. Uh, I was a little concerned when they took off uh, approval, mm -hmm. and it, it's just it hasn't skipped a beat. Everyone's been wonderful, so keep it going over yeah, there. Yeah, it's been really great over there. Uh, so while you're visiting our, our show notes to find that code, if you missed it at the end of the episode, make sure you leave us a review, a uh, five-star review. And if you write something up, then I'll even give you a little shout-out on one of our Buzz episodes. But that goes a long, long way. Um, you can visit our website to listen to the podcast, which is www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. You can also find our T-shirts there as well. So you can get podcast merch. We have a couple different designs up there, and uh, and we aren't taking a dime from that. It's all going to organizations that we've had on that are boots on the ground, uh, nonprofit organizations that are doing the work. So You can you can wear a great uh, plant native plant shirts, and all that money is yeah. going to go help a great organization. So you're spreading the message. They're great ways. shirts to wear to your HOA meetings. Yes. Parent teacher <laughs> conferences, whatever you have coming up, that's what they're great for. So, um, as always, you can listen to us on our website through Apple podcasts, through Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, really wherever you consume your podcast. You can even ask Alexa to play the native plants, healthy planet podcast simply by saying, Alexa, please play the native plants, healthy planet cup podcast. So with that, thank you everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thanks again, everyone. Owen, thank you so much for taking so much of your time out today. This was a, a wonderful conversation. We'll have to continue it again another time. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Oh, anytime at all. Uh, next up, we have our year-end buzz episode where we're going to talk about our top 10 all-time uh, episodes, yep. which is a completely different top 10 list than last year. So it's we, we found it pretty interesting uh, how it shakes out mm -hmm. this year. Oh, yeah. You might as well. So make sure you tune in. Uh, and we'll see you again next time. Until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment. Hey, everyone. This is Fran. And Tom. And you guys were very patient. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed our uh, most recent episode with Owen Wormser. And as promised, we have a special promo code so you can buy his book, uh, Turning Lawns into Meadows. Yeah. So if you go to Stone Pier Press, that's who the publisher of the book. Um, and they have a whole bunch of other books that all tend to be environmental or, or nature-based. Uh, and you can use the code MEADOW20 to get 20% off not just Owen's book, but any book on their store. Oh, that's a great deal. Yeah, yeah so looking forward to that. So use that promo code and, and support a, uh, a small publisher. And and a, and a great author. It's a great book. Tom and I both enjoyed it uh, greatly. So uh, make sure you head on over and uh, make a quick purchase. Yep, and that code will only be good until January 8th. So. All right. Hurry All right. up and, and get the book already. Go do it right now. All right. Keep it native, everyone.